Hello, I'm Kristen McDonald, and thanks so much for tuning in to Second Vision. My guest will tell you that all of us want the same things in life. We want to feel connected to ourselves, to our work, to our source, and to our purpose. The world is now more connected than ever with the Internet, and yet so many of us feel disconnected. Daniel Levin is the author of The Mosaic, presented as a parable. The Mosaic follows the journey of Mo, a young man who loses his parents and then sets out to discover his life's purpose and what it means to be told his parents are in heaven. The Mosaic presents a new way of looking at the world along the lines of the alchemist and the Celestine prophecy. Daniel's not just talented as a writer, he's a problem solver, a corporate leader, and a sought-after speaker. He's also the real deal as part of his journey included hitchhiking around the world and living in a monk, living as a monk in a monastery. And I know he has a huge heart because he once gave all of his money to the poor. And that's something that my, my dear brother would have done, I'm sure. So welcome, Daniel. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's an honor. We've spoken a cut once before, and I just loved you from the moment we said hello. Oh, instant connection. Like I said, it's the Mutual Admiration Club. And my wonderful engineer, Richard Burton, who never gets the credit that he should, who's standing by with us. So uh, I, I just wanted to tell you, I can't put the book down. I'm on the second go-around with my iBook reader. And I know for some of our visually impaired customers and people who listen to the, the show, they are going to be very happy because you said you're recording it on Audible soon. Yes, it's a harder process than I thought because I'm using my – I wanted to use somebody else's voice, and people said, no, no, your voice and your resonance is so important because it's your story. So I'm sitting in the closet, in our, in our closed closet, with, my, with a microphone and the, and the book in front of me, and reading it is harder than I thought it would be because it also touches emotional places in me, and it also is hard. I'm not an actor. I'm not a reader. I'm not a – it's a, it's a harder thing than I thought, but it will be done within the next month or so. So that is fantastic. Well, there's so many different levels in this book, and so many incredible, colorful characters. Um, tell us, you know, what led you to write it, and and you know, as I mentioned in your introduction, in my introduction, that you hitchhiked around the world. This must have been food for thought for your book, yes? A hundred million percent. Most of the characters that are in the book, I met somewhere along my journey, whether that was hitchhiking or just walking on the street. One of the things that I really looked at when I started writing was how, how we, you said it in your introduction, how we are in the most connected time the world has ever known and how disconnected or how alone so many people feel. We know what's happening 10,000 miles away, but we don't know the name of our next door neighbor. We know the troubles that are going on through a tsunami or an earthquake or a fire, but we don't have any idea what suffering our friends of ours even have. And so the sense of connection that we feel with the world has become somehow less and less in a time where you would think it would be more and more. And so and the, the iPhone has so much to do with that in computers, you know, where you see people when they're out to dinner and they're on their phones and they're not talking to each other, and especially the millennial generation, you know. Yeah, and it's even, it's even what we choose to post on our Facebook posts or what we choose to post are our happiest moments. And then we, send, we start to think, why don't I have that life? And why, is, why, is, why are my days not like that? But we don't see the other 23 hours, 59 minutes, and 45 seconds of a person's life that is not in that picture. 
No, so, it's so true. And so we start to want something that we think we should have. We start to try and be someone we think we should be rather than just reveling in our own connection to ourselves and how glorious and magnificent we are, not because we have to be extraordinary, but in our ordinariness. And that's what, that's what struck me in writing the book. I wrote about, to my surprise, I wrote about ordinary people, a street worker, a blind woman, a waitress, a juice man, a homeless guy. The and, mirror and the, person. And the mirror maker. And, I, and, and what happened was these aren't typical archetypes that you think those are who I want to be. When the trash man comes and you realize that he can take away everything inside you that is keeping you from having what it is you want, I would want my kids to be that trash man. I would want them to know how to touch another human being so that when they leave, leave, that person feels empowered and inspired to just go and live the life that's their life to live because it's mm-hmm. a beautiful life. So that's what inspired me, trying to figure out what happened to the connection we once felt and how do we reconnect the disconnected world. And in the process of writing it, the mosaic gave me four practices. And those That's are beautiful. The four practices I, I of love connection. what you said about the blind woman. You know that to, it's, you know when she said everything that you want is right in front of you. You know. Yes. And that's so often so true. You know, we're looking and searching for something, and yet, you know, as the Buddhists say, sometimes it's just it's right there in the palm of your hand. Totally. And it, it isn't even. I mean, in, for me, my reality is that it isn't outside of us at all. The blind woman in my book has the beautiful gift of being able to not see the world outside of her and mm-hmm. only get to know the world within because that's the world that all of us who can see actually strive to get to. That part mm-hmm. of us that we could see that feels the beauty of who we are inside and that our answers all are there. They're not found outside here. Our happiness is inside. It's not outside. We see that. We see that we want this thing, we get it, then, we, then we're happy for a few minutes, then we get disappointed, then we want something else, we get it. We're happy for mm-hmm. a few minutes and we're disappointed. But when our happiness is inside of us, what remains? Now, how would, you connect, how would you teach people to be more connected? So there are four practices, and I would love to share those with your listeners right now if I could. Please. Okay. So the first practice we've heard, over and over and over and over again. I, I know I heard it, and when it came to me, I said, oh, come on, this can't be it. I mean, this has been so overused, and it's simply the practice of being kind to yourself. When I sat with that a little bit and I started to listen to what those words were actually saying, what I realized is I am so hard on myself, and so many of the people that I meet are so hard on themselves. We would never treat our friends the way we treat ourselves. No, self-love. And, and self-love. And so what I realize I end up doing is I end up hitting myself 24 hours a day, seven days a week, putting myself down, telling myself I'm not good enough, telling myself I can't do that, telling myself, oh, what an idiot you are, telling myself, oh, you, got, you made a mistake. And if you were to do that, I would say, come on, that's okay. So what I it's so true. Is, I, I love to. I hire a little committee, you know, when I'm really down, and they sit on my shoulder. Those little little committee people, and you think, <laughs> I love yourself, that. you know, 
I would never invite, uh, you know, all these people into my house if they were putting me down. So, uh, you know, totally. you hire the board of directors, and they all say, ah, you know, you did a great job. Forget about that, you know. So that's, that's <laughs> what I, how I bolster myself sometimes, you know, the little munchkins, I, you know. And I love that. And so what, what happens when I continue to hit myself is with all, with all due respect to myself, I build a wall around myself to protect myself from my own, my own assault. Right, right. And that right. wall... That wall ends up being only about three millimeters from my body or three inches from my body. Because right. I don't know where I'm going to hit myself when. So I have to protect myself. So in that environment, I am siloed. I've literally siloed myself from the world that I live in. And then I wonder why I'm not connected to the world. Because even when I do connect, my wall is just connecting to their wall. And we both hope that no one will peek over that wall and see the little kid in the fetal position, one, praying that you'll never see the imposter that I've painted on the walls around me to look beautiful. Oh, that's so true. Our vulnerabilities. Right? And so once I realize in the practice of being kind to myself, and on my website, themosaiconline.com, I actually created a bracelet that's called Be Kind to You. And, and I invite people, the first five people of your show that send me an email, I will send that bracelet. That, that, it's a rubber band bracelet. It's, a, it's, it's one of those silicon bracelets. But I will send that to them free of charge. Because what I want people to do is try to do a 21-day, 21 consecutive-day challenge of being kind to themselves. And when, so what happens is you, you put the bracelet on your left wrist and you start your day. When you realize that you've done something to sabotage yourself or put yourself down or eaten foods that you said you weren't going to eat or not exercised or not treated yourself with kindness, you simply take the bracelet off your left wrist no matter what day you're on and you put it on your right wrist and you start again at day one. The idea I love that. I think that's fantastic. It's like my sister and I do a seven-day no-complaint diet. We go on that sometimes. Okay, now it's a seven days. You know, it's it's like a fast. It's like a mental fast. Exactly. So, if, and the goal isn't to get 21 days immediately. The goal is to realize how we treat ourselves, be more right. aware of how of how much we sabotage our efforts, and enjoy the process of learning to be kind to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So, if I can go on to step two, the practice. Please. Two. But once we once we're kind to ourselves, I no longer need that wall that I put around myself that protects me from my own assault. And my kindness melts that wall. And suddenly now I'm open to a world around me. Now I might be scared of you and put up a wall in the distance that keeps me, keeps my property safe, keeps me safe from you. But I have a lot more space now. And suddenly I'm vulnerable to the, to the atmosphere. I see things more. I, under, I, I hear birds. I, hear, I, I see views around me. I start to understand that the world is bigger than my little silo. And the second practice is to become vulnerable. And, and I imagine you're more things. forgiving of other people. You're forgiving of yourself. You're more a open. Billion per- yeah. a, a billion percent, because in my book I talk about the gardener. And the gardener, mm-hmm. has, yes. this, he has this beautiful garden. And Mo asked him, how did your garden become so beautiful? And he, realized, he said, it's really nothing that I've done. I mean, anybody with a sense of, of, of color and, scent and taste can see that flowers, these colors go with these colors. You put them together, they look beautiful. Fall flowers go behind short flowers. 
And Mo says, no, 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 I've seen a lot of gardens. These are exquisite. And he asked Mo, when you, do, you, do you ever garden? He said, yeah, I do occasionally. And he said, what do you do when you come to that clump of weeds that when you pull it, it breaks off in your hand? And Mo oh, said, I remember no, that point in the book. Yeah. And so, as you remember, then Mo said, I normally don't have enough time. I just level it off, and I just go on because I want to make sure the garden looks pretty from the top. And he said, yeah, but then when you water the garden, what happens is your weeds and your flowers both grow. So when we don't have weeds in our garden, the weeds that exist in other people's gardens look like flowers to us because we're not relating them back. And this is about what you said. When you're kind to yourself and you treat yourself nicely and you don't keep putting yourself down, the natural consequence of that then is to do that with other people as well. Yeah. Much softer, much more open. Hundred percent, because what we see outside is only a reflection, like the mirror maker says, is only a reflection of what we see inside. And so when we start to practice vulnerability, everything in life starts to speak to us. We start to receive what the world wants to give us without defending ourselves against it. But I'm just thinking, but you also don't see the, the negative vulnerability, I imagine. You see the softness and the kindness and the humanness. You, you see, but I, I think you do see the negative vulnerability, and you do know that sometimes you're going to get hurt, and you do understand that that's part of the process. And right, but I'm saying it doesn't appear to be as negative. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I'm going to say it slightly differently. From mm-hmm. my point of view, what you allow yourself to do is then become a, a holding place for people who have negativity to put their negativity in that without the judgment that that negativity is coming towards you. Oh, right. You, That's what I mean. Without right? the harsh criticism. Without the, without the judgment or the harsh criticism. Mm-hmm. But Thich Nhat Hanh says something beautiful. He talks about compassionate listening. And in the process of compassionate listening, what you do if you say to another person, I have no idea what pains and sufferings you know. I have no idea what, what pain has made up your life. Please take a moment and share those with me. And, and you might think that I'm going to use those to hurt you. I will never, ever, ever do that. I want to know you by knowing your whole life. So share with me your pains and sufferings, and I'm going to, put that, I'm going to hold, create a holding space for them. And just by the very act of them being able to release those, just by the act of them being able to tell this to you, the, their suffering lessens. And even, he says, even if they come and say, you know, good son of a gun, you did this to me and you did that, you just listen. Let all of that go into the holding tank. And know by the very act of your compassionate listening, you're removing suffering from their life. No defenses. A, no defenses, no rationalization just allowing people to say what needs to be said. To be. And in, and in the world that we live in, we talk over each other, right? Constantly. And you look at the politics, we're not, we're, not, we're not looking at to solve a problem. We're looking to have our side be better than your side. Oh, but it's more split than ever now. More split than ever. But our politics are only a reflection of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And if we didn't have that garden with those weeds, we wouldn't have the politicians or we wouldn't allow our political system to be that way. Absolutely right. Is this make, so it's making sense to you so far? Very much, very much so. 
Okay. So our first practice of kindness allows us to drop the walls that we use to protect, which allows us the second practice, which is to be vulnerable. Then the third practice is to be purposeful, to do what you came to do. And what happens when we take down the walls that exist around us, everything in the world enters us. We're, We're like a receiving station. So we now have to be able to understand where is it we're going? Where is the destination we are trying to reach? And what of all this information that is coming into me will help me bring myself and those I love to the destination I'm trying to get to? Let me try and share a personal story. My wife lived, my wife died 18 years ago of the most painful cancer you could ever imagine. Oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you. She had blood-curdling, screaming pain for 45 minutes, every 45 minutes for two and a half years, all day, all night. Unimaginable. Unimaginable. I can't even imagine that pain. No. And for for me, the great white knight who comes into her room and makes everything right for everybody, I was two inches from her, and I couldn't take one second of her pain away. Oh. Okay. I lost two so, parents to cancer, so I, I feel your I feel your pain. Oh, thank you. What I saw, my wife was the most healthy person you could ever be. She ran every day, she was vegetarian, she did yoga, she meditated, she lived a healthy, good life, and she died the most painful death you could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. So when she died, I made the I made the decision. That healthy living doesn't do anything for anybody. Because look, if it did, why would she die the most painful death they could ever do? Mm-hmm. And what I decided to do is then eat in a way that would bring me comfort because I had so much pain in me, so much emptiness in me, that I wanted to just eat things that would comfort me, fill me up in that moment, make me not feel empty. And so when you eat things that comfort you, you don't end up having a felt waistline. I ended up gaining lots of weight. Okay, I ended up being much bigger, and it, and and I just thought that's okay because who cares? It's not it's not the big deal. I got a heart scare where someone thought maybe there's something wrong with my going to be something wrong with my heart, and the doctor said, "What do you want to do about it?" I said, "You know what? It's time for me to just start eating well. I know I know if I eat well, I can drop weight." In one moment, when I changed my destination from comfortable eating eating things that are good for me, I stopped eating every. I stopped eating sugar, dairy, gluten, processed foods, car, carbs, meat, fish, and I became and I started eating a plant based diet. Well, along with that, weight dropped off of me, right? Because of course, plant based diet is going to make sure. you feel it's going to be healthy. My body started to feel well. Pains in my body disappeared because of the inflammations weren't being fed by the foods that I was eating. So mm-hmm. all I want to say is once we tri- once we make it once we decide what our destination is, we put that into our, the GPS of our human operating system, and it takes us to our destination. So well, lucky for you, you're very strong-willed. You know, I've, last week's show was called "Never Binge Again" with a PhD psychologist on a book he had gained 100 pounds. So you're very fortunate. You know, you didn't end up with diabetes or or something. So you had a lot of willpower. Is my point. Yeah, the doctor said to me, your body, your body, in spite of what you've done to it, is, is like the body of a 16-year-old kid. It's healthy. It's strong. Fantastic. It's ready, right? Are but you still a vegetarian? God, I, I became a vegetarian again. Yes. 
So I went, I had been eating meat, but when this happened, I became a vegetarian again and I stayed a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Yes. Good for you. That's great. And so, and so what I really want to say is once we become vulnerable, we become like a receiving station. So mm-hmm. that's when we have to know what we came here to do and live purposefully so that we can receive all the information, listen to it, but then only take those pieces that will help us get to the place where we want to get to. And when we can do that, and when we can do that, we now, we now have, we know what we came to come to do, and we start to understand the fourth step, which is build your mosaic. Connect to those pieces that will bring you to the destination that you want. Well, in real life, did you find your purpose by hitchhiking around the world? You know, when you came back to write this book, was that after your wife had passed or? The purpose uh, no, is so everything. I could talk endlessly on the topic of purpose. You know, I, I found my purpose through second vision, you know, through light, losing my eyesight, a totally new purpose. So I'm a big, big fan of reinventing yourself, you know, and finding your life's purpose. Yeah, I, I think purpose is everything. And when we don't you know, I ask people all the time, what do you, what do you think you're here for? Mm-hmm. And their standard, their standard response is, I don't know. Mm, I know, I know. Right. And when you think about it, if you think if you believe in in a higher power, call it God, universe, source, whatever you want to call it. That's that can create us so that we could become a carbon copy of somebody else. It doesn't we don't need to be copies of somebody else. So if you think we were created to do what we were supposed to do in this world and that nobody had ever been created to do what we were that we're going to do, because we wouldn't need to be created if they if it already had been done we would realize how significant it is that we understand why we're here to do what we're doing. And it might not be that different. It just might be a different expression. When I was at Hay House and I helped them grow from one from $3 million a year in sales to $100 million in sales by bringing authors and, and different looks and, and, and projects to them, what happened is Louis Tay didn't say anything different than Wayne Dyer or Deepak Chopra. But the, the personality of who they were expressed it in a way that people could understand it in a different way. So the information is the same, but the way it comes across is slightly different. And that's what our purpose is, to find our way of expressing truths that have been here all the time so that people that relate to us can relate to those truths in a way they never have before. And when we live purposefully and, we're, and we are open to the world and we're vulnerable to the world and we're kind to ourselves and to the world around us, then we start to connect with other people that can do the same thing. And that's when we see throughout all of civilization, small groups of people have come together to create major shifts in the world. We call them now early adapters, but, but they're small groups of people who have started to make a change that people can relate to and then can follow in. That's the pot, that's the process of this mosaic. Of that's trying wonderful. to find and we're so we're looking we're not looking for people of like mind because just like those silos we put around ourselves to protect ourselves, like minded communities, which used to be the greatest thing in the whole world, are now becoming silos that are keeping us from having connection with the rest of the world. It's time for us to melt down our all silos and to start to connect with people of like 
and unlike mind. Because when I see, when I talk to someone who sees the world differently than I do, I invite the possibility for myself to see a different world. Well, of course, when I mean, you think of all the, the huge success stories, you know, like Steve Jobs or um, Jeff Be- Bezos, what's Be- Bezos? Bezos, yeah. Yeah. Be- yeah. I mean, just any of these huge companies, you know, and if they had all like-minded people, the, you know, nothing would have happened, you know. They need all the yeah. creativity in a team like that to really just take off and be fantastic. And I understand you left a company and had a, a multi-million dollar prospect, you know, to travel around the world. Was that... Yes, my my uncle. When my parents passed away, so the, the mosaic is roughly my story, but it's not my. If I did my job well, it'll be everybody's story. But my parents passed away when I was a young boy, and and I went from living in a lower middle class family to living with a man who was world who who was a household name. He was R Block of H and R Block. My mother's sister was his wife, so they took me in, and he said to me. Danny, after a few months, he said to me, Danny, I have been watching you, and I don't have any sons. I only have daughters. And in those days, that was already 50 years ago. In those days, men didn't leave their companies to daughters, or at least he didn't leave his company to a daughter. Mm -hmm. And so he said, I've been watching you, and I think you can take over my company. You're going to start pushing a broom, but I think in a few years, you'll be sitting next to me. And I want to invite you into that opportunity. And under another conversation we'll have, I'll tell you that story. I I ended up not doing that. Uh, And it was maybe one of the stupidest decisions I ever made. And yet, what I realized in writing The Mosaic is that only three years ago when I wrote that book, and I'm 63 now, I realized that all of these opportunities, all of these incredible things that have come to me in this life, have been so beautiful and so magnificent and have been heaven on earth, but they were not the heaven I was looking for where my mom and dad were. And so I couldn't do them. But my purpose was to find that place where I felt loved and I felt understood and I felt unconditional love and acceptance and that I was able to give that to another human being. That's just amazing. You know, and it, it from everything I've I've learned about you, it doesn't it just doesn't sound like a fit to me. You know, H and R Block. You know, I could have been for no. the money, but it, it's not you at all. No, oh, and, and and you know, someone who was very wise to me in another in, in another situation where I gave away a lot of things said to me, "You think that the purpose of your company has to be to do good." There's another thing that you can do. Your purpose of your company can generate income for people and generate income for yourself, and then you can do good with the income that you have. So there's another way of doing good without having to do good every step along the way. But somehow in me, that just didn't resonate. I wanted to, I wanted every part of my life to be a part that I could smile about and feel honorable about and feel good about. Um, because I think the interactions we have, the connections we have to every single thing that we do, we build the mosaic of our life. The pieces we connect to, if we, if we, we, can't, we can't run a, a business that takes advantage of people so that we can help people in the end. And I'm not saying H&R Block did that. H&R Block was a great company. And had I had, had, I had the grace to take that over, I think I could have done great things with it. It just wasn't mine to do. And exactly. So, 
And so like you're saying, in that place where we're open and vulnerable, like I was as a kid who lost my parents, and here's a, a here is a, a hero of mine saying, "You can you can have this." Those vulnerable moments, so many things come to us, but we have to know what's ours, and it might not. Well, make you sense obviously had a anybody. lot of strength of character. You know, how old were you when you lost your parents? Uh, my dad passed away when I was thirteen, and my mom fifteen on the same day. Oh, so my goodness. Two years apart on the same day, July 4th. Oh, so my goodness. 15 years old, I moved from Philadelphia to Kansas City, and my I, I my aunt and uncle were so kind and put up with so much of my craziness um, and tried so hard to help me. Uh, but when I walked away from it, they just couldn't deal with the pain that that caused because they were used to having people be able... They were having used to having people do what they suggested they do. Right, And right. I, I just wasn't at the place where I could do that then. I'm sure they understood once they, once they saw your journey unfold. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, we're still in process. Because <laughs> <laughs> remember, remember I talked about the pain that we feel and the silos that we build to protect ourselves from that pain. Yeah. And we, we want, when we get hurt, we all do it. And I don't know, I, I think in some ways, I hurt them, and I, I've talked to them. Uh, my, my uncle's passed away now, but my aunt is still alive, which is my mother's sister. And we talk from time to time, but it was just too hard for her to understand that she she gave me such a beautiful opportunity, and I would turn away from it and not accept it. She couldn't understand me. Uh-huh. And I understand that because when we give to our children something we think is so beautiful, and they turn their back on it and say, you know, well, I don't want it, uh, and those are the nice words, but I'm not going to take it, right? Then well, that hurts us somehow. Absolutely. I think in your book you make a point of, you know, toward the end, without giving away too much about if we don't walk, if we haven't walked in someone else's shoes, you know, as the shoemaker says, we have no idea, yeah. you know, what, what they're you know, what they're, why they make certain decisions and what their life is about. Yeah, it, 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 it really starts to become very clear when we do that practice of listening. Because if I can really, if I, if as a 15-year-old, like I was a 15-year-old that was hurt and, and, and broken because I lost the, my mom and my dad, you know? Devastating. And my, da- my dad was my hero. And so um, I just... I wanted nothing but to be with them again. And and part of what I realized in writing, you asked me earlier if I found my purpose on the hitchhike trip. Well, I hitchhiked. I went to school, and then I left. I dropped out of school to hitchhike around the world. So that was many years ago. It wasn't like just recently because a 63-year-old guy out hitchhiking is a little bit scary for people. Oh, no, um, I figured you did this in the 70s or what. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. exactly. When but, ISIS wasn't around and when it was the last That's paper. right, right. <laughs> but you know what? What that, that same gypsy spirit in me, when I finished the mosaic, my goal was to just get into like a little motorhome or a sprinter or something like that, a, a, a Volkswagen van, someplace where I could just sleep and travel city to city and just talk to people and just listen to them. And so part of what I want to do now through the Internet is just talk with people, listen to them, have them talk back, because the world we live in 
I think, is short on listening and long on talking. And listen to me. I, I'm, I talk so much, right? No, no, no. That's the point of interviewing you today. You know, and, but, but, you know, what did my mother always say? We have two ears and one mouth, right? So. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, your and book so, sounds absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I, it, what surprises me is that I pick it up now and see things in it that I never even saw when I was writing it. And it, I say that in the preface, I didn't write this book at all. What happened is somehow the mosaic entered me and wrote it through me. I would write things and it would erase things. I would write it and it would change it. I would write it and it would lose it until it said what it wanted me to say for it. Similar so, to conversations with God. Yes. I, when I was at Hay House, one of the things I, 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 that I marveled at was the people that wrote the book didn't know the things that they were writing about. They wrote the book they most needed to read. And so many times when I would speak with the authors, because they would come to me with many of their troubles, I would say, it's time for you to just reread your book. Your book is helping people solve exactly these problems. And mm -hmm. it, it marvels to me that we don't write. There are a few people. There are people like Yogananda who wrote Autobiography of a Yogi, who, who wrote that book to share a vibration that he lived in his life, that just in reading the book, you can feel his presence. But most of us write the book we most need to read, and the Mosaic is definitely that book. The Mosaic is the book that I most need to read, because the more I read it, the more it connects me to things that I didn't even know existed. It's beautiful. It's simple... And, and yeah, I, I heard, uh, I mean, I rather, I read in your, um, in your biography that you said that heaven was not what you thought it was. Can you expand yeah. on that? Yeah, I, I thought heaven, I grew up thinking heaven was a place where there was a, a big old guy with a long white beard sitting like the Wizard of Oz with, you know, yeah, controlling everything. Yeah, like Santa Claus, ready for you. All right, like Santa Claus, exactly. Um, what I see is that we carry a portable paradise with us wherever we go. And we can either, we either can carry a portable paradise or a portable hell. And it's really our choice of how we live our life and how connected we feel, how protected we are. When we live in our silo, we live in, a, we live in, a, in what I believe is a, is a portable hell because it doesn't go anywhere. All we see is our, is our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own things, and our own, our own fear of getting hit. But when we have the opportunity to open that silo up, to realize we live in a benevolent, kind world, to realize that we treat ourselves with respect and love, and we treat other people that way. And we teach people how to treat us. One of the things that's beautiful in starting to practice kindness for myself is the message of how I want other people to treat me. I communicate by the way they see me treat myself. Of course, they world, say you can't love anyone else unless you love yourself. Right, but what's coming to me even in this conversation, which is so beautiful and fresh, is I understand that anew because in a world where I'm constantly hitting myself, I communicate to you the way I want you to love me is by knocking me down because that's how I, that's how I know love. But in a world where I treat myself with love and respect, what I communicate to you is the way I want you to love me is to love and respect me. And that's how I'm going to love you too. And even if you choose not to love and respect me and you try and hit me, I will still love and respect you. 
And when I can do that, when I can live in that world where I can hold the space for people to be 100% who they are, all the good, all the bad, all the right, all the wrong, if such concepts exist, then I, I become a walking container that allows the world to live in a place called heaven. You know, years ago I was having this um, conflict on the job with another person, and I talked to my minister about it, uh, Unity Church at the time, and actually we did a wonderful interview on the air on television together about the book Conversations with God, but she said to me, you know, when this happens, you need to throw back a big ball of white light to this. This head writer was giving me a terrible time, you know, on on a TV show I was working on, and she said, just throw the white light back at him. Do you know... That relationship not only diffused his anger and everything about him, but within about six weeks, it turned around, we were friends. Yeah. And it was just sending out that confidence of self-love and, like, he couldn't attack me, you know, with, um, you know, with the way he was, he was so strict and the way he was treating a lot of people on the show. Yeah. I love that. And thank you for reminding me of that because I always need those reminders as well. And there's a place that I want to even dive down more centrally, if I can. And I don't know more centrally, but for me, it's more central. In sure, this please. I get into those conflicts with myself. And what I think sometimes within my own mind, if I don't like the way I'm treating myself or I don't like the way I'm doing this, or I, when I try and change me, I don't get much benefit. But when I just try and love and accept me, when I just say, Danny, I know you're doing the best that you possibly can do at this point, and if you knew better, you would do better. And I just love you, and I want to sit in this space with you and hold you, and you don't have to be anything more for your, for me for me than me is already. I will just love and respect you and honor you because I know through love you will heal. And I know through constantly knocking at you or trying to change you or fix you or or assuming you're broken and trying to fix you, it will only make things worse. If we this is why people world, love their pets, you know? Do they come I'm, home at right. night and their unconditional man's best friend is their, their dog, you know? Unconditional so, love. Yeah. I'm going to tell a very, a very bad joke, okay? Okay. But, uh, there was a guy who said, you can tell how much your wife loves you and how much your dog loves you. Lock them both in, a, in the trunk of your car for half a day. When you open it, the dog will come out and be, like, excited to see you. And your wife will be, what the hell did you do? Right? And That's I don't think it's a, a more politically incorrect joke if I ever said it. But, oh, my God, that's funny. But there's truth in what you're saying. Uh, oh, yeah, I just I, imagine me getting out of the trunk. No. <laughs> uh, no, no, I imagine me getting out of the trunk. I would be the same way. But yeah. but there's something beautiful in that sense of of the dog yes. who, just wants, yes. who just wants to serve his, his, his friend, his master, his owner, his, his friend. I know, and, I know. And, and when we serve other people in that way, where we just love them unconditionally, but even... I'm saying now take it, we do, we do better with other people. How about with ourselves? How about being that dog for ourselves? How about allowing That's got to be the first step. First step. step. 
Yeah. And we hear it And that's so a constant often. practice. It's like going to the gym. You know, you have to constantly, you know, uh, it's like a mental gymnasium. You have to work on it just like going to the gym and staying fit or a diet or, you know, being vegetarian, anything like that. And it's, so it's one of the reasons why I created the bracelet, because it's so hard, it's so easy to become unconscious of that. Right. But when we have a simple little tool, and you don't need to get my bracelet, just use anything. But use something, and my, my bracelet's seven ninety five on my site. It's not a big deal. But use something that will allow you to establish the practice, that will allow you. I mean, there are days where I, where I change wrists 37, 47, 57, 100 times because I just watch myself time and time again say something that isn't good about myself. So you change right. wrist? What do you mean? You change the band? You change the... So what we do is you put your... Start with your bracelet on your left wrist. And the idea is to get to 21 consecutive days of being kind to yourself. When I find that I'm not kind to myself, I take the bracelet off my left wrist and put it on my right wrist. Uh, and I, I start see. over. And I start over at day one. Very clever. Very clever. So the goal is to get back it. to your left wrist. Well, the, the goal is, I don't mind if it's on my left wrist or my right wrist. The goal is to stay 21, to have it stay on one wrist for 21 days, which means. One wrist, that's what I mean, that yeah. I, that I have practiced kindness for 21 days, and there's never been a time where I had to change it from my left to my right or my right to my left. Mm-hmm. But in the process of realizing how many times I change it, I realize, oh, my God, how many times a day am I going to beat myself up? How many times a day do I have to belittle myself to make myself feel okay? And why would I do that? Why wouldn't I just be kind to myself? Why would I? Why would I sabotage my efforts to get to where I'm going? Why would I put stones in front of me when I want a clear path? Because every well, time I a- knock myself down, I'm knocking myself down. Sure. And the, the wristband is accountability, which we all need. We either need a buddy system or something, a, a constant reminder. So that's a great idea. So, Danny, we don't have too much time left, but um, I love people to know about your website and how they can get the book, and it's been an absolute pleasure. You know, I just I want to tell everyone listening, The Mosaic is a fantastic read. I'm reading it for the second time. So many colorful characters, and I think you'll learn uh, just as much as I have, you know, and, and benefit from it when you do read it. And it will be on Audible soon, so let's give them the name of your website. Thank you, Kristen. The name of my website is very easy. It's themosaiconline.com. So themosaiconline.com. You'll be able to get all all the. You'll be able to get the book there. You'll be able to get all the links to my social media there. Um, if you want to get it, also you can get it on Amazon.com. Just put the mosaic Daniel Levin, and you'll you'll see it. Uh, if you do that, I'd love for you to write a review of it so people can get a sense of how you're experiencing it. I'd love for you to share with me how you experience because the book is the beginning. It's it's a it's a simple story that hints at so many things down the line that you will discover as you allow this mosaic to connect to you, and you connect to the pieces that it allows you to open up in front of you. So many different that, facets. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom and all the beautiful, you know, uh, stories about your your journey, you know, which led you to write this book. So everyone listening, I want to thank you and start today with self-love, so important, and then love the people around you, be grateful, 
And in terms of purpose, I love the quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, go not where the path may lead, but where there is no path and leave a trail. I'm Kristen McDonald, and thanks so much for listening to Second Vision. I've been with Daniel Levin, author of The Mosaic. Have a beautiful day.